I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Asking people to endure without end is, is inhumane, and it doesn't recognize the humanity of people. Like one of the one of the both the strengths and ironically, it's one of the strengths of human beings, but also one of the weaknesses is that we have a level of fragility, and you know the fragility also adds beauty to it, but it also does add a vulnerability to it, and sometimes we just can't take it, and we've got to step back, we've got to step away, we've got to look the other way, and we and we and sometimes we, in all honesty, we just got to cry it out or we got to shout it out. How you day? How you day? That was the voice of Oren Davis, and in this episode, we talk about positive psychology. Have you ever thought about what positive psychology is? What is positive psychology? Well, you get to learn that in the episode. We also talk about self-actualization and quality of life. All important concepts as we seek to advance, seek to become the best versions of ourselves. He has a, a fascinating career. He, he, you know, he straddles the lines of education and workplace like I do as well, but he does it from a different angle and a different perspective. And we also dive into his life experiences. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hope you find yourself in the episode. And I hope you become even more motivated than you were when you started listening. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is a new friend of mine who I engage in a lot of debates with, <laughs> but his name is Oren Davis. Oren Davis earned his first doctorate in positive psychology and is a self-actualizing engineer who enables people to do and be their best. He consults with companies from startups to multinationals on hiring strategies, culture, innovation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as employee well-being. He also coaches people at all levels on building self-knowledge and developing personal growth trajectories. Now, as the personal and sorry, as the principal investigator of the Quality of Life Laboratory, he conducts research on flow, creativity, hypnosis, and mentoring. One of the things I want to discuss him uh, with him on today's podcast is, first of all, what positive uh, psychology is and how he became a self-actualizing engineer. And, and his bio is, you know, incredibly long because he does so many interesting things. But Without further ado, welcome to the show, Oren. Thank you. The pleasure is mine. First of all, I said it there in the intro, what is positive psychology? It's a great question. So a little history, positive psychology emanated from humanistic psychology. And the idea is that we're looking at the science of human flourishing. And that's what what Marty Seligman calls it. And And I do like that. I prefer to call it the psychology of what does work. 
So a lot of psychology previously has been looking about fixing problems, but we also want to look at like what goes well and how do we make sure it goes better and how do we make sure it keeps on going well? Wow. So that's a lot of what we focus on in positive psychology. You know, it's interesting you say that because what goes well and what doesn't, when you think about psychology, especially with the stereotypical aspect of it, you don't associate positivity with it. It's almost, it's almost neutral or sometimes negative. You're like, wait, there's a positive element of it. And so I, as I was reading your bio, and I know we've had conversations and, and as I was doing research for the podcast, I, I know that a lot of people are struggling to find that element of positivity given the last 15 months we've had. And so yeah. I, I wonder if you've noticed, if you found things that you could add to your, your research and study in the last 15 months due to the pandemic and COVID that contribute to the concept of positive psychology. I'm not sure that I've added anything in my repertoire, but I've certainly seen the importance of certain aspects that we are ignoring. And one of them is uh, self-compassion. Mm. Mm. Well, other like compassion for others also, but, but notably I've been seeing that a lot of people are not having compassion for themselves and they're not taking into account their circumstances and all the things that they have to deal with. Like I, I have people that are, you know, telling me, you know, conversations that they're not being productive and that, and that they're not, you know, doing all the things that they feel like they should be doing. And then I ask them, well, what else are you doing and how much self, how much additional self care are you needing to put in just to keep yourself afloat when you don't have all of the other things that help you, you know, survive, wow. including things, just things like our, our, our interpersonal relationships, the, the fact of just going out and having coffee with a friend, and the fact that we haven't been able to do that, the fact that you, you know, just to be able to go out and take a walk right. is, right. is, is a very, is, not being able to do that really does affect us significantly. And so we need to come up with other compensatory measures. They take additional time and effort. Yeah, you know, the, the, the basic, those things that we often took for granted uh, in the past, all of a sudden become magnified when they take, you know, they're taken away from you due to an external force that maybe you didn't foresee. And we both, you know, we're both natives of New York at this point. And it, the interesting thing that I've noticed in New York City is, you know, the city is built vertically. But part of the appeal of New York City is the fact that you could just constantly, you could randomly go out and experience and, and get, get an experience. But when you're cooped up in, in that apartment for a little bit, you start to realize, oh, I can't go to that bodega that I normally go in, in the morning. Or I can't head over to Central Park the way I used to. Or we can't just head over to the, the subway and have these experiences. And... That was what I was experiencing uh, in, in the last 15 months. And, and I'm, I'm an ambivert, so I have a lot of introverted energy, even though I, I deceptively present as an extrovert. So I had a lot of solace from that. <laughs> but uh, it, it was fascinating hearing people's experiences because it, it led to a lot of depression for my friends, and which is something that I was curious to discuss with you about because they found that they were depressed not being able to access things that they normally would add to their daily lives. And, and that plays a role into your consultant and everything in workplaces, which we'll dive into next. But uh, I noticed a lot of depression. That's what I can say from, from, from my line of work. There was appreciation and depression, which is like a pendulum <laughs> that I saw. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah. We definitely saw a lot of depression. We saw a lot more depressive symptoms and we also saw more anxiety. Yes, exactly. And that was coming with a whole bunch of things actually coming together because, you know, in the United States, we also saw a lot with racial tensions rising mm -hmm. a lot. And <laughs> that was putting like, you know, in, in Concord with the pandemic, yeah, that was just putting a lot of people over the top. And I, 
I saw a lot of people very much struggling with this. I know that I did. Um, and I talked to a whole lot of other people that did. Yeah. And we did, we don't know how to deal with it. And, you know, even when we, even when we do know what to do about this, you know, the pandemic just constrains our potential compensatory measures. And so like so many of the things that we would do was yeah. hard to do. It's so true. I was listening to Oprah because she has a new book. Uh, and I, gosh, I want to remember the, the co-author, but it was, they were talked about trauma and, and how coping is different from healing from. And I saw that some people were diff- would both coping and healing. Some were just coping and not healing. And some were had already passed the coping and, and they were figuring out how to heal. But I felt like we also had an exception of pandemics. The racial tensions was a pandemic. It was also a pandemic, the health crisis, but, but also the, the, you had the election here in the United States. You had so many different things, people being considered essential workers, ironically not being paid essentially, right? And then going back home and dealing with all these fears, whether you're someone that believes in COVID versus someone that doesn't believe in COVID and then having to go to work in a virtual environment while being a caregiver for some and, and not, you know, all these things were happening. And in your line of work, since you help with employee well-being, diversity, equity, and inclusion and coaching, how did that work for you? You know, helping people, you know, be more inclusive in these work environments, but also giving them some sense of, hey, I can be who I am, even though I just added two new job titles to my to my workplace while working at home. So the first thing is what I've been telling people and and I've been trying to get people to understand this. You can't. And we need permission for this. (laughs) And I, one, one of the things, uh, uh, an earlier podcast I was on, you know, about, about uh, was called uh, Calling Bullshit on HR. And like, one of the things that somebody was asking me was, so how do you get people to work from home as effectively as they do in the office? And, you know, without spending a lot of money and putting in a lot of time and effort. And I said, you don't, <laughs> you just, you, you don't. And expecting that we're all just gonna like, yeah, we're all just gonna, you know, go home, move over to our home offices while we've got our whole families there without, you know, the privacy, the time, the breaks, the rules, the regulations, the guidelines, and we're just gonna do it. No, we're not. We're not. And what I've, and what I've actually been advising a lot of companies, advising a lot of people is like, give your employees a break, give yourself a break, like, recognize that this isn't these are not normal circumstances and under abnormal circumstances you're not going to get normal results without extraordinary efforts and that's going to mean extraordinary efforts by the company extraordinary efforts by the people and sometimes the extraordinary efforts by the people are going to mean compassion for other people and recognizing that they're not under normal circumstances and neither are you and neither is the company and neither is the country and neither is the planet so chill (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, it, you're right. It does go back to that point of uh, compassion and self-compassion, you know, for yourself, because one of the, to me, in my opinion, the enemies of progress is that idea of perfection and even a racial tension as well. And, and I do a lot of anti-racism work in addition to, to this. And there are a lot of people that would say, oh, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'm not going to do anything. Right. That's that idea of perfection being the enemy of progress there. Or, oh, my gosh, what if my boss, if I fail here, my boss is going to fire me now. I understand that element, but leaders listen to this podcast as well. How can they create that environment so that they know they can tell their coworkers and, and, and colleagues and, and people that they lead that it's okay. 
you know, are there any prompts or any best practices that they can practice? Because many employees don't believe it. You know, they, they're like, oh my gosh, I have to be extra careful. Oh, I missed this time. Or can I do this? Well, can I tell my boss that I have to do something for my, my kids? How can leaders create that safe environment that's psychologically safe for people to actually just be compassionate to themselves? Well, step one, recognize that it's slow. And everybody wants that trust to happen now. Mm. It won't. Like, it just won't. People don't trust on a dime. And especially when there's every reason for mistrust and distrust. It's there. First of all, the idea of being a criminal for a word. We live in a world of cancel culture. And, you know, it was one, I, I really enjoyed your book, by the way. And it was one of the things that you pointed out in your book was that, like, cancel culture is actually anathema to the progress. Yeah, I do agree with that. I certainly and, believe and that. Probably, I'm sorry? No, I said I certainly believe that even more and more now. And, and because it erodes the trust. And it means that people can't say what they think. And the funniest thing is if you can't say what you think, you also can't get correction. Mm. And everybody everybody says, like, you just got to do your homework. You got you to you know, do the learning. Yes, you do. But the whole point of having a teacher and the whole point of interacting with other people is the fact that when you put your ideas out there, you will get feedback that wasn't in your own head. When you're just doing your homework by yourself, all you've got is the feedback in your own head and you can guess at what other people are going to say. But then when other people actually say, like you get real perspective and you get to see things that other people don't see. Yeah. And or rather, and, or things that other people do see more accurately, like you see what they do see and what you don't see. Yeah. And that actually will give you more information. But if you're a criminal for word, right, you put an idea out and you're not aware that it's racist. And then all of a sudden people are canceling you. They're calling you racist, all the rest of that stuff. Well, here's the, there are two problems that come with that. One is you don't learn. And two is you resent. And that resentment actually helps you hold on to your problematic views. Cause you don't, like you don't want to learn anymore because you just got your head bitten off for trying for putting something out there with a genuine intent. Again, something else that you actually talked about in the book is like, you know, you can cause harm, but the intent matters too. And you have to recognize both, both the intent and, and the, the fact impact. that even with a good intent, you could hurt somebody. Yes. That, that's what I, I, and I did write that in the book because I said there are moments where uh, impact matters more than intent and moments where intent matters more than impact. And I gave the example of accidentally stepping on someone's uh, foot and breaking it. You know, at that point, uh -huh. you, you, that was most likely not your intention, but the impact is maybe that person's out for a commission for six months. They can't do many things they wanted to do. And if you react to like, well, what, why are you crying? What's the big deal? I mean, I, I just broke your foot. I wasn't doing it on purpose. That is my, you would never think someone would say that. Right. But if you then apply that analogy to multiple things, it allows you to understand that even if, yes, you did that, mm -hmm. this is the impact that's being felt. Now, and multiple elements as leaders, though, you have to be able to have the capacity for both where you, you can both manage the idea that that person didn't um, understand the impact, but also under, help that person understand that regardless of that, this has been historically going on and you mm -hmm. need to find a way to humble yourself to say, I'm sorry, which is something many people don't normally say sometimes. Just, hey, I'm sorry, how can I help, right? That, that says, you know, what can I do to be better instead of that moment to be defensive? Because we obviously cancel culture contributes to that, but even before cancel culture became such a thing, it's like, wait, what, why are, you, why are you telling me I did something? It wasn't my thing. But that need to protect self, self-preservation sometimes 
can actually minimize and dismiss other people who are experiencing something over and over again. It's just like a nuance then. It's not one either or the other. Well, part of that is that, it, you know, even before we had cancel culture, we had litigiousness. Yes. And, you know, there was, there was, the, there's always been the problem of does the punishment fit the crime and intent, even like, yes, you can harm people with intent, but intent is the question of whether the punishment fits the crime. When you intend to hurt somebody, it's a different punishment, you know, same, same damage. But yeah. De the same damage with one intent versus another intent, you know, that's that's where you have to think about whether the punishment fits the crime. And the irony is the harm is still the same yes. to, the, to the individual, but the retaliation or the punishment or the recompense or the type of justice meted out yeah. and how that's all done, it should be should vary by intent, yeah. but it often doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. And, you know, it's like the, the manslaughter versus murder, right? that debate even and I do this with my clients like because I like them to think about these things I will say manslaughter I'll say murder and I'll say what happens when you kill people in war and they're like oh, you know all these people are all dying right they're all dead but there's different level people don't get punished a lot of times if it's war right that's mm -hmm. what you're supposed to mean even if it's innocent lives which is so devastating and at the same time manslaughter versus murder there's a different set of punishment you go to the X amount of jail and all these things and so we've always had this grading level, whether we knew it consciously or unconsciously, mm -hmm. but it's just sometimes we passively go through that and thinking, well, shoot. Yeah, you're right. You, we actually have been practicing this level of judgment um, yeah. without knowing that we are, we're grading it based on the intent. <laughs> so, um, well, funnily enough, we're not always grading it based on intent. And that also erodes the trust. There's that element as well. Yeah. Okay. So you're saying so at the top, the leadership needs to start practicing those things. They need to have the integrity to make sure that they're taking intent into account when they're, you know, helping to restore balance when things have been brought out of balance in some way, when somebody makes a comment or when somebody takes an action and that throws things off and that may damage, for example, coworkers. So, but how do you restore the balance on that? Do it carefully, do it, you know, taking the intents into account, recognize that, you know, accidents happen, but also accidents still cause damage. And how do we clean that up? And how do we work together to clean that up? And yeah. you know, really, really restoring not just the balance, but also the positivity as as necessary. But making sure that people aren't a criminal for a word, uh, making sure that people get the chance to develop understanding and get the chance to restore. Yeah. And and actually work to restore. And I think that you know a greater focus on restorative justice rather than punitive justice would be a great start for building the trust. And also when, you know, the management, the leadership is able to be vulnerable yeah. and to recognize that even if they're not vulnerable, other people are necessarily vulnerable, showing compassion, showing patience, both of which require vulnerability. Those things all help. And they're some of the best starts for building the trust, but also recognizing it's slow and you're not going to get the kind of trust you need to make things work, it's a minimum of six months. And that's if you're doing everything right. I mean, you're doing this perfectly. It's going to be six months. If you're not doing it perfectly, it could be more like six years. And people <laughs> will, and the thing is, people are like, well, but, but we don't have six years. You don't have a choice. You know, th th that is such a good question. You know, right now we're in the middle of several conflicts, right? There's what's happening between Israel and Palestine. Just what's happening in India, there's what's happening here in the United States. I'm from Nigeria, uh, and we're 
or getting ready for some elections, but there are also debates. And even I study a lot of Pan-Africanism and what's happening in the continent. There are several people trying to figure out how to go to the new normal with um, elections coming up, but also how to get the vaccines. And then there's the accessibility of vaccines. All these things are leading to conflict, which to your point, people will respond with, it's well, you know, how do we, it's always going to be there. It's already exhausting, which on some level you can understand because they're like, wait, I thought we just finished one. Why is there another one? Um, but how do you find that level of endurance <laughs> for, for, for lack of uh, a better word where, you know, we had what happened, what happened last summer and it's still continued to happen this year with the anti-Asian violence. And it's just, you know, I, I do it and I've found a way for myself. I have my answer, but I'm curious from your perspective, how do you find that level of endurance to just continue knowing that there'll be another conflict or there's still always a conflict in the background while you're fighting one more? So first of all, I think that one of the main ways that you maintain the endurance is that sometimes you just break down and then you rebuild and you like asking people to endure without end is is inhumane and it doesn't recognize the humanity of people. Like mm. one of the one of the both the strengths and ironically it's one of the strengths of human beings but also one of the weaknesses is that we have a level of fragility. And you know, the fragility also adds beauty to it, but it also does add a vulnerability to it. Yeah. And sometimes we just can't take it and we've got to step back. We've got to step away. We've got to look the other way. And we, and we, and sometimes we, in all honesty, we just got to cry it out or we got to shout it out. And finally, yes. enough, that's one of the main reasons why people protest is that they've got to shout it out. They've got, they've got an anger. And they've got these emotions. And if you think of emotions, by the way, one of the best models I've seen of emotions is thinking yeah. of emotions as a call to action. It's energy. Yeah. And when we've got too much energy and too much call to action, we have to do something. But we can't always do something productive. And so what we need to do is vent it out. And so we do. And we can take to the streets and we protest and we shout out our anger and we shout out the injustice. And we know that that is nothing but a temporary measure but at least it puts us back in balance. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I love that you're saying this because one of the things that I learned, you know, there's always that angry black person stereotype, but I always describe, I've always described myself, at least in the last recent, in the last few years as an angry optimist. And one of the things that I, I learned, I I, yeah, I got it from Asan Minaj before uh, the comedian and I heard him say it and I was like, that is truly where I am because I learned how to, to not hate my anger because I was often taught to suppress it. You know, because they're like, you're scared, you be this. But my anger is actually what fuels me a lot of times, but it allows me to be in those moments, vent, scream, or to write, <laughs> or to mm, yeah. do something else. And to, you know, is how you channel it. But I, I, I think there's so many emotions that have been uh, co opted and made to feel in a negative way. Even vulnerability for men, for example, would be another one, or yeah. crying, or emo all these emotions. And I think we are at a place in our world where we need to re-examine how we've defined emotions because they're not all you know they're not all just one thing the way someone would say like you know growing up they'll say if you're angry that's bad if you're if you cry as a boy that is bad but you're like no you could cry as a boy so you don't keep those things in and then you understand that and you can be angry because you're you have a right to be angry and you can also use that anger for something else so that's what i've been learning and unlearning throughout the last year and a half yeah, it's not the emotion, it's it's how you answer that call to action. Mm. Mm. Ah, it's deep. How you answer that call to action. Wow. Okay. 
Okay. Well, speaking of call to actions, uh, let's, let's talk about what you do with the quality of life laboratory and how you, you, you get the, you know, your clients to, to heed to that calling. You know, what is it that you actually do in your lab and how do you conduct research and, and, and you know, help the creativity and flow pass through your clients? So in the lab, we're doing actually just a lot of like, for lack of a better term, like bench research. We're doing uh, empirical research and we're trying to understand, first of all, um, how creative ideas are generated. It's one of the things we were trying to figure out. It's not clear completely how people come up with creative ideas. We know that people do come up with creative ideas. We know that there are certain techniques that make creative ideas more likely, but we're still exploring that as, as, a, as a research world, the creativity research world. We're still trying to understand that. And so I conduct experiments on that. I conduct experiments on the relationship between creativity and empathy. We're trying to understand that. What is a creative person? We, we talk about like, you know, some people are creative people and some people are more creative, less creative, whatever it is. But it, it's kind of hard to define what a creative person is. And so I'm, I'm kind of working on like, what does it mean to be a creative person? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I love that again, because I, I, I always tell my audience this, you know, I grew up in five countries and four countries, but I'm Nigerian. And in Nigeria, we only had, you know, four, we only had maybe four options, like lawyer, engineer, doctor, or failure. <laughs> and so I ended up being the creative in the family. And I'm also the oldest. And a lot of my creativity were, you know, the arts, but also speaking and writing and, and podcasting, consult, whatever, any of these art uh, things in, in the media as well. And one of the things that I, I fought against, because I don't know, I don't believe that all traditions should be preserved, is sometimes creativity stifled um, in youth based on models, outdated models. And mm -hmm. it's stifled out of a means to protect, you know, I know my parents and family were trying to protect me and say, this is the best path to success. You know, it's what they've been told, right? Mm -hmm. If you do this, you have less questions asked about you. Uh, and, and I've seen that happen more and more, especially the more I become a professor and I teach communications and my students, you know, freshmen, sophomore, and sometimes they're juniors and seniors if they're taking this elective. And you hear them talk about their most vulnerable moments and they, they are afraid of going after what they want because while going through college, they realized that they didn't want what the degree was in. <laughs> and it's, and yeah, I'm like, a lot this, of my students too. yeah. And I'm like, yo, this is that create your creative aspect is speaking out to you. Don't stifle it right now. And so that's why I love what you're saying, because I don't think there's enough research in that, you know, or language to that creativity and innovation, because many people would then go for quote unquote, the safe option because they're afraid that there aren't any other examples, you know, for them to, to look at. Well, the thing is that, you know, going the creative route isn't always safe. And right. they, you know, parents, parents, you know, they love their children and they want their children to have safe, secure lives. They, they, they want, you know, that their children to be comfortable and yes. to be happy. And so, you know, they want them to go, you know, a tried and true way where they can do good work and make good money and live relatively safe and comfortable lives. And you know what, for some people that works and hey, that's awesome for those who do. For the rest of us, however, safety is just, you know, when you go to unsafe places, it's higher risk, higher reward. Yeah. And the thing is, some people, they need that roller coaster. They need that thrill. And you know what? They'd rather die trying for the experience of that thrill than living a life without it. Because, you know, even if that life is safe, secure, and, and, and good by all nominal metrics, 
to them, it just may not be living. And if you're not, you know, and if, if they're if they're not living, then why the heck are they, you know, still on the planet? And incidentally, we do see a very we, we do see a higher uh, suicide rates uh, in certain professions because for them, it's not necessarily living. And then there are a whole lot of reasons for that. And like, I don't want to I don't want to oversimplify and say that that's the only reason why. Of course, but yeah. there are but there are any number of situations where people just go, that's not living and I want to live. And yeah. part of that is you know, the success, and by the way, the failure. Yeah, that's And fair. the extent to which we have failed, and funnily enough, as, as we talk about the anger that we experience when we fail, this drives us a lot. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor-guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. This is so true. Ah, gosh, I love this. This is so true. Just wanted to stop by here before we get back to the episode. I wanted to let you all know that I do have a collective for people who are interested in developing their cultural competency skills, becoming more anti-racist, and it's a resource of... Things that you can do with your family, with your school, with yourself to work through your individual journey to become a better culturally competent leader. It's called UID Collective, and the link is in the show notes, but it's a mix of courses. It's a mix of resources, things you can download, and all you need to do is sign up as a member. It's a monthly membership. I'd love for you to check it out. Use it with your friends. Use it with your family. Use it with yourself. Okay, the link is in the show notes. It's called UID Collective, and it's for those of you that want to improve your cultural competency skills. Back to the episode. Okay, well, then I'm curious, how did you get into this line of work? We were talking about creativity and the fact that there isn't a lot of safety in this. You willingly chose this, and you do multiple things. I know you're also a professor, but yeah. you like you've got your lab, you know, you're working with, with all these your startups as well. I know your startup advisor as well, uh, especially for early stage companies. What was the path? When did you realize, like, I have to do this. This is what this is the thing that I have to do. And how did you get into this field? So all of these things so much happened by accident. And I'm not, and I'm not even going to call it necessarily happy accident because they weren't all happy accidents. Mm. Um, but one of the things that um, has been a major influence on me is actually uh, something from my culture. I'm Jewish and uh, I'm Orthodox Jewish and I grew up with the Jewish culture, but there, there's actually a really great parable about uh, a rabbi named Zusia. And Zusia was a sage. He was a righteous. It was a righteous teacher. But on his deathbed, he was very shaken. And his students asked him, Rebbe, why, why are you so shaken? You were a scholar. You were a mentor. You were, you were a great man. You know, just like all of these other, you know, great scholars and so on. And, and, he, and the Rebbe said, what I'm afraid of is that when I meet my maker, I'm not going to be asked, 
why weren't you more like this sage who was even more righteous than you? Or why weren't you more like this sage who was even wiser than you? I'm afraid my maker is going to ask me, Zusya, why weren't you more like Zusya? Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Okay. And, and that got me thinking about self-actualization a lot. Like, you know, I was born, you know, I was born who I am and you know, God willing, I will have, uh, you know, a, a long life ahead of me. But at the end of that, whenever that is, when I meet my maker, I'm afraid of that question. That is, that is, that is a hard question. And, I, and I've been living my life wondering, like, you know, to what extent am I being, am, am I, am I making the most of my life, whatever I was given the time, the strength, the limitations, the resources, Am, am I using them well? Am I using them right? It, you know, when my maker calls me into account for this, will I be able to hold my head at least not completely on the floor? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm that, only, so I'm going to be judged against myself at the end of my life. And that, that that's the Jewish tradition that you're judged against who you could have been. Like not, not, not against other people, but against your potential. And you're judged against that. And yeah. honestly, that is simultaneously and a very empowering fear, but also a very humbling fear. And also, you know, in the wrong moments, I'll admit it openly, at the wrong moments, it's a crippling fear. It's for sure. I mean, uh, I, I know I was asking myself similar questions when I got into near-death experience at 22. And then all of a sudden, I realized I hadn't done anything I said I was going to do. Mm -hmm. and, and I was in the job I despised in the town I didn't want to live in. And that just became the biggest defining thing. And it was with that emotion that I decided to quit my job and move to New York City, even though I only got conditionally accepted into Fordham and rejected in some and, you know, all these things. I was like, you know what? I would rather just go here and, and, and move. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes sense. Like you said, it's empowering, but also crippling at the same time. And I guess sometimes people are experiencing varying degrees of that. And... Uh, they need a little bit of a push. Oftentimes, I don't want it to be a near-death experience for everyone. <laughs> so I'm asking you this. What are questions and prompts people can ask themselves to eventually find that courage to, to be more themselves? Because um, like I said, I don't want it to be a near-death experience. I want it to be something where they can actively self-actualize every day. So from what I've seen of both the research and just you know qualitative analysis and all that stuff, a lot of it is, I have found that for almost everybody, there is a big jump that mm -hmm. they have to take or a big personal sacrifice that they are going to have to make. And I, I, I've, I've looked at a whole lot of people on this and, you know, they jump off the cliff and they pray that their parachute's actually going to open. But it's always been some kind of really big jump yeah. or some kind of really big risk or accepting some really big sacrifice or loss you know in the hopes that it's gonna work out and you know i think that a lot of them before they jump or before they take that risk or accept that loss they ask themselves would i rather take a shot at something better or would i rather live my life the way that it is hmm. ah you know why they just said, you know, that, that, so that could be reframed as for anyone listening is the same way you just said it. Would, would I rather live my life the way that it is or take a shot at something better? 
And for some of you, you might be in your prime by external standards, right? You're experiencing everything that everybody will qualify as success. But internally, you always know. I feel like people always know if they could do a little bit more or if there's something else that they want to do. And that moment of rare honesty that we have with ourselves is, is, an, is the first step before you can decide to take that jump. And if you get into the habit of asking yourself, I think you can eventually find the courage to do that because it's going to rise up and you're like, oh, no, but I could be doing more. But, but there's something else <laughs> that I need to do. And then you'll eventually make that leap. Maybe the, the, there's one thing I do want to add to this piece, which is that you have to be willing to accept that if you don't want to take that leap, you've got your reasons. And, you know, people talk about the fact that we, we, we have to get out of our comfort zones. We have to get out of our comfort zones if we're going to grow. But there's a reason there are reasons to stay in a comfort zone. Hmm. And we have to be careful about how we judge, first of all, those who do. Those, yes, people exactly. have their reasons, right? Yes. And, and people have their reasons. Yeah. And sometimes they look at the trade-off and they say, you know what? I'm looking at the life I live and I don't like it, but I look at what I'm going to have to sacrifice to get or, or, or risk or potentially lose to go to this next level. And you know what? That's not worth it. So you have to be at peace with whatever choice, whatever decision you make, whatever answer you, you, you ask um, with that, because maybe that can actually even free you. Right. When you've come to terms with, OK, yes, I would like to do this, but um, the sacrifice I'd have to make is not something that I, I'm willing to take right now. And I know even if you compare this with love, there's some people I actually I think I subscribe to this. People believe that you have multiple soulmates. I think it goes against the the, the narrative where someone would say maybe you have one soulmate. Uh, but in the way they described it, I can't remember who it was. It says it depends on where you are in life. Right. Someone could be right for you at this moment based on the choice you made or who you've decided to become. And it's the same sort of thing. If you decide to become someone else, it could be someone else. And it takes away that limiting <laughs> belief that if it's not this way, I'm a failure. If it's not this way, I didn't find the right person to be with. And if it's not this way, I'm not perfect, right? Because we have more options than, you know, than, than we have. I know you're Jewish and I'm a Christian. There's that element of, um, um, uh, what's it called? You have a self-will. I think, what's uh, is it self-will I'm thinking Free of? Will? Free will. That's what I'm thinking of. Free will. And then there's also the element of, of, of God giving you direction as well. And then there's a spectrum there where you decide to make the decision with your free will. And that God has also had all these things that you could, you know, the different paths that you could take. Right? There are all these parables about, I gave you this, I gave you that. You decided to go here, you decided to go there. Up to you. Uh, the Talmud actually has a great piece of wisdom on this that I love. It's one of my favorite passages of the, of the Talmud. Yeah. And it says, and it means, um, God, I'm talking about God, God anticipates everything yeah. and gives permission. Oh my gosh. That is and so, cool. and the funny thing you were saying about the whole soulmate thing, I actually had a moment in my life and it was, I have to admit, it was one of the weirdest experiences of my life. Yeah. When I met this, um, I have a time heterosexual, I met this woman one day and I realized Looking back about two years prior to that day, I made a choice. And I realized that if I'd gone the other way, that woman would have been my wife. Mm. And it was <clears> the <throat> wackiest moment because I know that this is not the right woman for me now. But yeah. I know that if I'd gone the other way, this would have been the woman of my dreams. 
that is, I, but that, that is it. It was something I had to unlearn. And I was, I was learning that. That's why I, when I heard, and I've, it's been repurposed multiple times when I heard that, I, I had to really think about that because like, wait, what? Uh, and then I was like, yeah, because even in the, you know, in the movies or any of these things, and I, and I watch, uh, I watch a lot of movies there. This is why we have to be mindful of our programming. We sometimes consciously unconsciously just accept certain things. And then I, I've gotten to the habit of really questioning everything to the point where I have to explain to myself why I believe it, right? I don't want to just accept something and say, well, I, I want to understand why I believe this because I want to be able to explain to someone else. And then as I was explaining that, I was like, it actually makes sense. Exactly like the example you gave, right? Depending on where you are in life, that attracts you to someone else and attracts someone to you. But as you grow or go whatever, or, or as you go to another direction, even if it's not growing, you are exposed to a different environment and different things become more appealing to you. That makes so much sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, and it, it's also freeing in a lot of ways because yeah. you know that you know you you know that you made choices, and the fact of the matter is you did a cost benefit analysis, and you know what? Maybe you didn't make the best choice, but maybe you made the best choice at the time, or you're making the most of the choice now. Yes, and Perfect. you know one thing that people people don't often think about is that they're afraid of making a choice because they can't unmake it. True as that is, you can also change course. Yes. And we do all yes. the time. Yeah. If the pandemic was as taught as anything, it's that a lot of courses can be changed. I know I work with a lot of companies and you do as well. They were so against remote work or mm -hmm. even have remote hiring. And when it was taken away from them, it was, it was the only way. <laughs> You're like, okay, well, we have to make this work. I know a lot of financial institutions, for example, who love the brick and mortar feel of it. We're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll do it, right? We'll, we'll find a way to make it work. And that experience really, you know, I think it's such a beautiful thing about humans, by the way, how creative we can be. But it really forced people to unlearn those things because, again, there's that word tradition, the traditional element of professionalism and work had been you need to come here. And when it's taken away from you, you're like, well, we'll make it work, <laughs> right? Uh, we will make it work. But actually, what this pandemic has taught many people and a lot of companies is, funnily enough, the opposite. It's taught us that we do need to be in person. And for so many people, first of all, they thought that they love remote work. They've learned that at least in, under the pandemic conditions, they hate it. And by the way, the funniest thing is there are a whole lot of people who hate remote work that would actually love it if they were doing it not under the pandemic conditions. That's yeah. a whole different ball. Yeah, but, 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 but you know, even in that though, some people realize that they need to be more in person to connect. But I also found the opposite though. I gotta say this, or I found the opposite where some people are like, I'm never going back. And I, <laughs> and, and it's the high, and some people are like, I'm a hybrid. So I. I guess what I'm saying is it's not one or the other. It's that people realized that it's okay. Because even now, I'm sure of some of these br brick and mortar buildings, they're going to have to contend with the fact that not all the you know, coworkers are going to want to come back to work. And so you have to create that environment where some want to, because they're tired of being cooped up and others are like, you know what? No, <laughs> this is yeah. what I want. Yeah. And the thing is that, we're, but we're also going to start to place different value on human presence because one of the things that we've learned is that technology is not enough. Yes. You know, for example, one of the one of the things that you were actually talking about in your book was was body language and micro expressions and all that yeah. stuff. But as a point of interest, Zoom and video chat and all the rest of that, it just doesn't cover it. Nope. Nope. I don't nope. have a good. First of all, I don't have a good enough look at your face. Yeah. To see your micro expressions and the exactly. the feed is sometimes slow. The internet cuts out. And like, I, I can't have as real of a conversation with you here as I can in front of you over a yeah. cup of coffee. Yeah. And one of the things, for example, that I know is um, I talk with my hands. 
but almost none of that is coming through on Zoom. Every so often you see a little flash of my hand through the camera, <laughs> yes. background, but yeah. half my hand gestures happen below the level of my shoulders. Yeah. And so people don't see it. No, and, and that's a big part of who you are. Yeah. yeah, it's a big part of who you are. It's funny, you, you said I teach communications and public speaking and I had to start my semesters. I just started being an adjunct last year. It was all through the pandemic. I had to be so, I, can you imagine teaching public speaking and communications on, on Zoom? Which is, I had to figure it out on the fly quick because I had to come up with different ways to, to judge your presence. And it was really, it was a really good experience for me, but also the students because um, they allow them to really build confidence, but also understand that it, that it mattered. But in my head at first, I had to get past that idea. I was like, ah! They're not gonna, I'm not going to be able to show them what they can do on stage. And I'm like, Arr! but I was like, well, I can show you how you can actually convey presence in different ways. But mm -hmm. it was it was a pause for me because I had to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I, I've been teaching online uh, this whole year. And one of the biggest challenges is that when I've got a room full of students on, you know, on Zoom, mm -hmm. it's very hard for me to read the room. Yeah, I. Like a lot of my style as a professor is contingent upon reading the room. Mm -hmm. And you just can't do that in quite the same way when everybody's like, you know, a two inch, like a one inch or two inch by two inch square or rectangle on the screen. You just can't do it. Yeah. It's yeah. much harder to get the feel for the room and to see do people get it, do people not get it, are people nodding and you can't always see the nods. And that's if everybody's camera's on and, and if everyone's on. camera's on, it's a big and one. And <laughs> by the way, like when I've got my you know, when I've got my lecture slides up on the screen, that means that you know everybody like I gotta be watching the lecture slides and I gotta know where I am in my notes and I've gotta know and I've gotta be watching the students, but I can't watch them all when I got the slides up on the screen and, and you know, and if I want to put up a whiteboard again now I've now I'm looking at the whiteboard. I'm concentrating on writing on the whiteboard, but I can't do this like glance, glance yeah. that I do when I'm when I'm actually in the classroom and I'm writing on the whiteboard in my cute little cursive chicken scratch. But I can look at the whiteboard, look at the students, look at the whiteboard, look at the students, and those those quick glances, kind of like we're doing with driving, like quick glance, quick glance. You can't drive the classroom that way in the same way. It's all different. You have to learn something completely new, but we didn't have time to learn it. Yeah, no, that's so true. I love no, this is so great, but I'm imagining that people would want to know more because you obviously you're very, uh, you like uh, I was as you're a polymath. That's what I always describe myself as a polymath, a Renaissance man, uh, someone that does multiple things. How can people find out more about your work? How can they work with you? Uh, where do they need to go? So probably the best place is to hit up my website. It's qllab.org, qllab.org. Mm -hmm. And uh, people can find me on both Medium and Twitter as D-R-O-R-I-N-D-A-V-I-S. So D-R-O-R-I-N-D-A-V-I-S um, on both Twitter and Medium. I am um, reasonably active on both. Uh, I say reasonably, I'm not very active on both, but um, I certainly <laughs> post uh, blog posts every now and again. And uh, I'm, I'm very much a fan of uh, open source philosophy when it comes to my consulting and such. So I put out a lot of the a lot of the uh, basics for free. Um, people can find my diversity cheat sheet online. Um, it's out there. It's free. Uh, some of my primers on uh, how to develop diversity, get started on diversity initiatives, um, how to do 21st century hiring. Because a lot of what I do is I help companies hire better in general. Yeah. And the funny thing about what I do is that there are three main major problems that companies have. One is DEI. One is quality hiring, and the third one's employee engagement. And the funniest thing is they're all exactly the same problem. 
and no company ever has just one. You have all three or you have none. Wow. And so where I, where I work in my sweet spot in that sense is that the intersection of those problems. So that's what I talk about on my blog and people can read about this is that really they're all the same problem because if you don't have DEI, you will not have engaged employees and you probably won't have good hiring either. And if you don't have good hiring, you won't have good DEI, you won't have engaged employees and so on. Yeah. And so I'm looking, I'm helping companies build the core for that. And that's really where my services sit. And so I'm helping them build the core from which, you know, they're able to draw on to make DEI uh, initiatives and to make them work and to make them sustainable, which I also talk about again on the blog and in other places. So perfect. Um, I, I encourage people to read about it and, you know, to ask themselves questions about it. But in that sense, uh, you know, my philosophy is if you can read that and do it without me, by all means, please read that and do it without me. And if you can't, I'm here to help. And so are you and so are so many other people that are out there. And yeah. part of the part of my goal is, do you need somebody to help you? And often we do. Well, we'll make sure we'll put that in the show notes. But I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Before I let you go, though, I have I always ask my guests this final question. And it's my mission statement reframed as a question. So, Oren, how do you use your difference to make a difference? So I think that one of the things that people tell me that they enjoy when talking to me is the analogies that I draw. Mm. And a lot of that comes from the fact that I walk a lot of different roads um, in my life currently. And that's because I've walked a lot of them in the past. And so, you know, in whatever way people encounter me, they say, you're not like whatever that is. And you're not what I expected. And because of that, I, I use that and I leverage that all the time. And no matter what happens, people just come to this moment of shock around me somehow because I'm not what they expected me to be. And I, I draw on that moment, but also because I can, because I'm, I've walked these many roads, I can go to a lot of different places. And when I do, it allows me to have all the different experiences on which I can use to draw analogies for other people to help them see what another place is like. Mm. And that's, that's one of the things that I like to offer to people and people, people tell me that they, that they like that. And I, I, I appreciate that feedback from people because they tell me that that's one way that I can use my difference to make a difference. Well, there you have it. There you have it. That's how Oren uses his difference to make a difference. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a real pleasure. I've loved your exercise. And uh, hey, kings, queens, and royalty, till next time, use your difference to make a difference. You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxon.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.